What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. For this week's debate, we're going back to 2015. We invited two of the UK's top wine critics, Jancis Robinson and Hugh Johnson, to settle which two iconic French wine regions should make the top of anyone's menu. Burgundy versus Bordeaux. With our live audience at the event enjoying a complimentary glass of Chateau Le Lampori from the Bordeaux region and also a glass of Sauvignon Bon. From Burgundy, this stage was set for wine tasting masterclass. We do recommend you take a bottle or two, if that's your thing, while listening. Our host for the debate was Michel Rue Jr., chef de cuisine at the Michelin starred La Gavroche restaurant in London, and also a judge and presenter for the TV show MasterChef. If you'd like to hear this episode ad free and enjoy the full length version, you can support Intelligence Squared's mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com or by subscribing to the channel on Apple. Here's Michelle with more. Good evening, everyone. For me, it's an incredible honour, an honour to be here tonight, an honour to be amongst two greats that I look up to, as I said, an honour to be in front of you as well, um, many of which I believe enjoy wine, like myself, um, and uh, probably Gavroche customers as well. I've noticed already a few. Uh, thank you. It's great. When I got the call to do this, I immediately jumped to it. I said, yes, but why me? Why the chef? Well, I suppose it's because I am French, after all. I have French genes running in my blood, as well as French wines. You two will be glad to know. <laughs> and one of my first memories of drinking wines, as you all know, Growing up, maybe you don't know, I know there are a few French people in here. As you grow up as a child in a French family, you get to sniff the wines at a very, very young age. And you get a bit of wine with a drop of water in it. And I mean at a very, very young age. Uh, to get you used to drinking these wonderful wines and to appreciate the finer things in life. Uh, and one abiding memory I remember, and I, I could have been only about seven at the time, and it was a Sunday lunch, family lunch with friends, close, close friends. And I had to say, sat at the table for the whole period of the lunch. The starter, the main course, and then dessert came. And dessert came, and Dad grabbed me. And he said, you've got to put your nose in this glass. Sweet wine had arrived. So he forcibly pushed my nose into this glass and I smiled, I must say, I did smile. And then he said, maintenant faut goûter. You've got to taste. Now, 
thought, oh, all right, then I will. And it was ambrosial, nectar, the finest cough syrup I'd ever tasted. <laughs> Chateau d'Ikem, no less. What a way to start. What a way to start. So I was sold on it, absolutely sold on it. So that's my little, my little anecdote of how I fell in, fell in love with, with great wines. Enough said on that. These two really don't need much introduction, but I'm going to. Our first speaker tonight, arguing for Bordeaux, is one of the world's leading wine authors. He has written a host of bestsellers, including the World Atlas of Wine, which I have. You'll be glad to know. In fact, I've got several copies, which he co-authors with his opponent tonight, Jancis Robinson. And his annual pocket wine book, which I have several copies as well, whose 2015 edition is available now. Yes, we're not afraid of plugging this stuff now, I'll tell you. His books on gardening and trees are also celebrated. Unfortunately, I do not have a copy of those, but I shall be out there <laughs> buying one soon. And uh, making the case for Burgundy, we have another titan of the wine world. Her books include the hugely successful Oxford Companion to Wine, Wine Grapes, and the aforementioned World Atlas of Wine. She is the Financial Times wine correspondent, and her website, jancisromson.com. Yeah, well, I told you we weren't afraid of plugging things here. <laughs> has subscribers in more than 150 countries. She was the first person outside the wine trade to qualify as Master of Wine in 1984. And that's Jancis Robinson. I think they deserve a round of applause just to get us going. <laughs> Just a little question to both of you. How did you fall in love with wine? Very appropriately, it was a burgundy. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't brought up with wine, really. But when I got to Oxford, I was exposed to some pretty nice wine, not least thanks to a boyfriend whose father gave him a little bit too much money. I <laughs> liked this man very much, the, the father in particular. Um, and I, it was a, an evening at the Rose Revived in Whitney, which I looked up today and saw TripAdvisor, just three stars today. Mm. Um, and it was a bottle of Chambol Musignilles Amoureuse, 1959, oh. which was so, so much better than any student plonk that I had tasted <laughs> up to then. And I put my nose in it, and I could tell that, that in here was, was history and geography and mm. personality. And I could see that, that this was something that, that would give me huge intellectual stimulation but also just masses and masses of sensual pleasure. And I, I, have, I am on the record as saying that, that Bordeaux, you can appreciate Bordeaux from the neck up only, but not <laughs> Burgundy. <Ooh. laughs> That's my story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, our senior universities are doing a very good job because I'm the Cambridge contingent here. <laughs> the snag is that the wines were burgundy. <laughs> but uh, there was I pretending to work one evening in, in my rooms at King's and um, 
my, uh, from mate, came in a bit the worse for wear, a sort of disheveled dinner jacket and a stain or two down his shirt. And he said, you he said, you you've got to try these two wines. Um, he must have spilt a bit coming upstairs, but I did. <laughs> and groggy as I was with English literature buzzing around my head, um, I tasted them and I said, but good Lord, I said, yeah, I mean, this, this one is, I don't know why you showed me this one, it's nothing much, but this one is absolutely amazing. And he said, well, believe it or not, they come from within, let's say, 100 yards of each other on the hillside. And I suppose, in a way, that was the, um, the seed that grew into the World Atlas of Wine. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, without any further ado, I think it's time for you two to, um, to express yourselves to the full and start the debate. So, Hugh, your case now. Up you go to um, defend the, uh, the, the virtues uh, of the beautiful drink that is Burgundy. Oh, sorry, Bordeaux. Bordeaux. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jancis will deploy some pretty fancy arguments. She's got it all at her fingertips. And she will demonstrate to you that for finesse, for sensuality, for variety, for the soul of the thing, Burgundy is where it's at. She might even cite the variety of soils of the Cote d'Or and elsewhere. She will probably mention the Pinot Noir, <laughs> which she might rashly claim is the best red grape. I'm just second-guessing you, my dear, don't mind. <laughs> 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 trying to undercut your pitch. <laughs> and how the, on the Cote d'Or or elsewhere, the Pinot Noir interprets the soil so perfectly, so transparently, transparently that you can uh, tell exactly what you're drinking, where you're drinking it from, with a sniff and a sip. Well, aren't we lucky to have all these choices? I mean, here we are... Uh, uncommitted drinkers, you will commit yourselves later in the evening, I know, um, with the choice of left bank, right bank, Volney, Nuit Saint-Georges, come to that old world and new world. The world is out there and it offers us an unbelievable variety of things that we might drink. Uh, I know that this is actually what really attracted me to wine in the first place, because the fact it wasn't all the same. If you can find something uh, to enjoy, where there is a different interpretation or a different version of it every time, for every day of your life, for all I know, thousands and thousands, that's a pretty good thing to collect if you're a collector. And um, that is the way that my mind goes. I can't see a new wine bottle or a new wine label without wanting to know what it's like. I just want to get the cork out and um, have a slurp and see whether it's something that I didn't know about, whether it's something better than I expected or not so good. Um, there's always that stimulus, as though one needed stimulus, uh, to uh, its curiosity. And I think curiosity is both a fault and a virtue, but I'm jolly glad that I'm full up to the top with it. Now, we have in our glass the one with an X, the sample that I chose to represent Bordeaux. What a, what a fantastic um, responsibility. I mean, Bordeaux produces more fine wine than anywhere else in the world, and that's not an exaggeration. It is a huge area. 
it actually produces five times as much wine as Burgundy. So it starts with a bit of an advantage, the wider choice. The wine I've chosen is from Saint-Julien, in the middle of the Medoc. Uh, many people's first choice in Bordeaux, I'm going to say claret, actually, because it's uh, two shorter syllables. Uh, claret, what, what does claret mean? It means clear, light wine, and it goes back to the Middle Ages. Um, it was the wine that was first shipped immediately after the harvest. You remember Beaujolais Nouveau? Well, it was like Beaujolais Nouveau. You couldn't get it home quick enough. It wasn't going to get any better. In fact, it would go off if you kept it until the following year. So claret was a clear wine that had been Im immediately racked, didn't have any, any sediment, any lees in it, and was taken home. So claret uh, has been our national drink, as I remind you, as I said earlier. And one of the first clarets that people seem to understand and take to come from the Medoc, Saint-Julien lies right in the middle of the Medoc. It's not a wine of extremes, it's a kind of you're good or you're very good or you're wonderful average claret. This is a fair um, take on what claret means altogether. Um, this is Chateau Lalande Bory and it's 2009, which is a banker vintage. Uh, it is at, at, at the age it is now, six years, it is beginning to show the, where it's going to go. And as I shall explain, one of the great virtues of Bordeaux is that you can keep it with confidence if it's good and find that years later, you've got another version and probably a better version of what you bought in the first place. This capacity to age and to develop um, and become more interesting um, is something obviously not unique to Claret, but it's built into the formula, I think. So nature was very kind in 2009. It, it did everything right. It was called, as so many vintages are, the vintage of the century. Somebody said there are actually three kinds of Bordeaux vintage. There's, um, there's a restaurant vintage. There's a luncheon vintage. And there's a vintage of the century. So this is one of those. <laughs> um, and what do we look for in it? Well, the tasting routine will be familiar to everybody who's bothered to buy a ticket for tonight. I'm absolutely sure. I don't have to tell you where your nostrils are or where the opening of the glass is. You apply one to the other. <laughs> <laughs> you take a long look at it. The light is not the most revealing in this room. Happily, I have a piece of white paper. And actually, when I'm tasting, I always carry a bit of white paper because if it's some other color, you don't quite get the picture. Um, I look at it and I see it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful dark red, as I would hope from a young wine of a good vintage. Um, it, the color is deepest in the middle. And if you look at the edge of it, the rim, you'll see it's already just started to fade a little bit. It's paler at the rim. Well, as it gets older and older, you'll see that the rim grows broader and broader until with very old wine, there's quite a sort of ring of white around the wine. This is because inside, the pigments and the tannins are doing all sorts of magical chemical things together, uh, precipitating color and forming new molecular combinations, which come to your nose 
um, and make you smile. <laughs> so the, the sniff is a very important part of it. It is dry, is it not? It's almost astringent. You feel acidity in it. You feel this isn't quite what I'd call a delicious taste. It's not easy, sweet, sort of something sumptuous. To, that it's not like being served a lovely pudding. It's definitely for the, uh, the. It's one of the appetizing things that belongs in the savoury part of your taste. It is dry. It is. I feel it's even a little bit salty. It tastes of fruit, but not obviously of any fruit that you could possibly imagine. Um, as a, a fruity flavour, which will stay in the front of your mouth and sweeten your palate a bit, but not to the point where you could actually describe it as sweet. And then it is also drying other parts of your mouth, not so much the front part in the middle, but you are getting a slightly astringent dryness which leads you to have another sip, which, of course, is the secret of the whole thing. <laughs> that is the secret. Um, the, I don't need to say more about Saint-Julien, really, but I will just say that Lalande Bory is called from the, the Bory family, uh, who have been landowners in the Medoc for a very long time. Uh, they own Chateau du Croubac-Caillou, uh, and they own uh, Chateau Grand Puy Lacoste, uh, two names which will be familiar to a lot of you, I know. Um, they play at a very, very high level, and they had an opportunity a few years ago of buying a bit of land which had been from another class growth. I believe it was Chateau Lagrange. Lagrange, why Lagrange was selling part of its huge and wonderful vineyard, I can't remember. Um, and they started making a wine which is not a class growth. It, uh, it has been declassified to that extent. It doesn't belong to a class growth chateau. And the funny thing in Bordeaux is that land that belongs to a class growth is class land. I can't excuse that. It's ridiculous, but it's true. It's never spoiled my pleasure. I don't suppose it will <laughs> yours. Um, the Borries started Lalande Borry in order to have a wine of this caliber. In other words, not a super-celebrated wine. Something could be sold for a relatively modest price um, and that would play, please all claret lovers. We're just, Judy and I are just back from California where we had a fantastic time and the weather was wonderful. Um, one of the snags there is when you look at the wine list, the prices are absolutely astonishing. I mean, basically, a Napa Cabernet starts at $100, if it's got any self-respect. Um, and I looked at a wine list with great interest. The three cheapest wines on this posh restaurant wine list were all French. And they were a Saint-Emilion, a Sancerre, and a Chablis. Well, if in California they think all their wines are worth more than <laughs> of those three wines, um, I think they've got a problem. Well, they will in the long run. <laughs> There's another problem they have, but I, I'm not, I didn't come here to talk about Napa cabs, but I will say this, that very few people buy another bottle of the same. In fact, it stops you on the first glass. It's terribly strong. It tends to be sweet. It's in your face. And it's not what you really want to go with your hamburger. Um, 
And I always think that the secret of a successful wine business is to sell two bottles rather than one. So I'm not sure why they get hang up on uh, like what the hang up is. Um, We are broad-minded about wine. Okay, we love claret best, don't we? But we're very broad-minded. We'll try wine from anywhere. Um, Funnily enough. I mean, to us, Bordeaux and Burgundy are rival suppliers, and there are other live rivals. I mean, there is, there is Kiwi Sauvignon, and there are other things you could drink, but I don't advise it. <laughs> <laughs> but the nation that invented chauvinism does see things quite differently. <laughs> if, by any chance, and it won't happen, Somewhere in Bordeaux were to be offered a, a glass of Burgundy, either red or white, he would say thank you and be perfectly gracious about it, and he might even taste it. He might even force a smile. But his next re- remark would start with the expression, Comam. <laughs> what is Comam? It means even so, you know, notwithstanding, all the same, it's drinkable. The, uh, do I have time? You've got about a minute. I've got a minute. Uh, There are two cultures. They are not friendly to each other. Uh, In fact, they're embattled and always will be about the virtues of their wines. Pinot Noir, the pure produce of this wonderful land of the peasant where everybody belongs to the land and the land belongs to them. It's happened for centuries and centuries. Bordeaux, this concoction for the British market, where there isn't even a native grape. The Cabernet, the Merlot, all that family were imported from somewhere else. They didn't grow wine in Bordeaux at all until they found a market for it, and that market is right here. So they darted on this mongrel product, blending Cabernet and Merlot, because these grapes succeeded on their gravelly land. They found the deepest gravel, They worked on its reputation. They worked and worked and worked. They produced a product for the consumer, for you. They didn't wait for nature to give them uh, an advantage. They found the advantage, and uh, they have, over time, perfected it. Neither Bordeaux nor Burgundy was as good a few years ago, or over time, as it is today. Both have definitely upped their act a lot, and recently, uh, to our great benefit. Uh, they've changed their nature a bit. Uh, Bordeaux has got more potent, riper to taste, more fun to drink in a way. Burgundy has gone rather in the opposite direction, I submit. Uh, <laughs> so Bordeaux is here. It's available. It's understandable. It comes in big units, not in tiny little vineyard parcels, but in <laughs> big, big units. There are 250,000 bottles of a first growth. Even Petrus, the rarest Bordeaux, makes something like 30,000 bottles. Yeah. Romane Conti, which everybody worships in Burgundy, although most people have never tasted it, it must be true, in a good year makes 5,000 bottles. So what are they offering the world? A very, very exclusive product, a gleaming diamond for the super-rich, for the snob, 
Objection, Milan. And time's up anyway, so come on. It's time to get Is it time to sit down? Yes, I can go on doing that. Very well, thank you. (laughs) Very good. Thank God he ran out of time. I wouldn't have had a chance um, otherwise. Okay, Uh, I don't have much time, so let's look at those three elements that were um, in my glass of Chambon Musigny, Les Emirates, all that time ago. History. Well, as Hugh has just admitted, um, if you take the two heartlands of French fine wine production, the Côte d'Or in Burgundy, the Médoc in Bordeaux, The Côte d'Or has been growing vines since at least the first century AD, before Christianity. Uh, This was, uh, we discovered this in 2008. Suddenly an an ancient villa was found just outside Chevry-Chambertin. Until then we thought it was the third century. Uh, Whereas the Medoc, full of these class growths, um, was a marshy swamp until the Dutch were given a license to drain it in the late 17th century. Um, And when, according to Hugh's lovely book, The Story of Wine, it was still described as sauvage et solitaire. So wild and uh, just beyond the pale, basically. Uh, So Bordeaux is basically a parvenu, as as Hugh admits. Um, Geography. We move on to geography. Now, of course, the thrill of Burgundy, partly as a result of its long history, is the precision of its geography. And as co-authors of The World Atlas of Wine, Hugh, we agree wine is geography in a bottle. What's lovely about Burgundy is that its maps and its taxonomy are so refined, so precise, so dependable. And if all other variables, such as wine producer, vintage uh, technique is the same, different wines from different vineyards do taste different. Von Romanet Malconsor does taste perceptibly different from Von Romanet Chaume just down the hill got a bit more clay, it's a bit lower, and it's very, it's very, very convincing. It's geographically convincing. Um, at village level, the wines share common characteristics. Vaughan will have be lovely, racy stuff always compared with Gevry's richness and, and Chambol's transparency. Um, and over all these centuries, there's hardly been any change to the boundaries or the map in Burgundy. Medieval monks who did so much for viticulture in Burgundy would recognize many of the names that we see on labels today. Contrast that with Bordeaux, um, <laughs> where, for a start, chateau owners are, cons- as Hugh has just said, uh, Lagrange said, chateau owners are constantly swapping parcels of land. Uh, so that, and very, very few Bordeaux chateaus are one contiguous estate. They're sort of a little bit here and a little bit there, and I'll swap that with my neighbour. Um, even the um, boundaries of the communes change. I mean, the um, Saint-Julien Appellation was recently reformulated to include somewhere that it never did. Um, <laughs> and, well, I won't go into too much detail because I'll be running out of time. Um, but as for the general character of each Bordeaux Appellation, we were taught, as we were learning about wine, that they each had perceptible uh, character. Saint-Julien was sort of in the middle. Margot was scented and perfumed. Poyac, a bit stricter. But 
These have been eroded recently too, not least because the Bordeaux producers have so nakedly chased points from certain American commentators. <laughs> and so, says headmistress Jancis, they, um, they've been beefing up their wines. As Hugh has just admitted, um, they've got richer than riper and they've actually blurred some of those lovely distinctions that they used to have and that they should be so proud of. So, one big point in my book in favour of, of Burgundy, oddly enough, is that they don't actually bend to curry favour with us wine writers. In fact, I've been going to Burgundy to taste the latest vintage every year, every autumn, for at least 15 years. And I could count the number of invitations I've had to break bread with the vignerons on the fingers of one hand, um, whereas it is very different in Bordeaux. So we come on to personality, um, and I'm afraid here Burgundy wins hands down over Bordeaux. Um, although I must remember that we're being filmed, and therefore uh, I must be reasonably discreet. What's, what's great about Burgundy is the dirt. I don't just mean the all-important dirt uh, in the vineyard, but the, the dirt on muddy boots, the dirt in fingernails, Someone even like Dominique Lafont from as noble a domain as Domaine Comte Lafont. He has filthy fingernails because these are the people who both prune and prune the vines and make the wine. Whereas in Bordeaux, hardly any of the most famous wine folk would know what to do with a pair of secretaires. Um, they're much more familiar with spreadsheets because Bordeaux is above all a place of commerce as Strabo noted in his 7th century geography. He didn't mention wine at all in the context of Bordeaux. He just said it was a place of commerce. But I shouldn't complain because the Bordelais, unlike the, the Burgundians, are super lavish with their invitations. But it's always clear exactly why they give so many extravagant tastings, lunches and dinners. The same commercial phenomenon they, that saw the Bordelais spend so much of their time in China a few years ago, courting this new market. Now, of course, um, having actually lost rather than gained money on the expensive vintages they were persuaded to invest in, the Chinese have seen through the en primeur circus, uh, which is what it is, and I'm off to take part in it on Friday. And Nick, I know, says, well, why on earth are you doing it yet again? Because I'm curious. Um, so we'll be shown, hundreds if not thousands of us will be shown, little cask samples of the latest vintage. How do we know what relation they bear to the final blend? I don't know. And anyway, nowadays, there's no great scramble to buy early from the cask because prices have been softening. Bordeaux's had three, possibly four, lackluster vintages in a row since the great but overpriced 09 and 10. But this didn't stop the chateau owners from asking ridiculous prices for them. So now uh, the Bordeaux merchants and the sh um, have seller who buy wine from the chateau owners, and there's some overlap between them, have cellars full of unsold wine. And younger wine drinkers around the world today, there are many of them who actually don't really know Bordeaux because you don't see Bordeaux on the wine list of all that many places where these young people are going. Le Gavroche's wine list is a noble exception, which has some many fine Bordeaux crew on it. Um, but I'm, I'm worried, uh, and I'm not the only one, about the future of Bordeaux because I, I have a feeling they are losing, they, they've lost their appeal to a, a new and younger generation. But even this has done nothing 
to make the Baudelaire take any notice of a letter sent to them by the 12 top buyers of Bordeaux uh, among the UK merchants who were asking them to release this latest uh, 2014 vintage at the same, no more than the same than the 2008 prices because otherwise they think they just won't be able to sell it and attract customers. Um, But um, they're taking no notice um, because sadly in Bordeaux pricing is all about being slightly more expensive than your neighbour rather than um, actually attracting consumers. On the other hand, burgundy pricing has been really quite judicious. They just, they either keep their prices, that's expensive, it has to be expensive because as Hugh says, it is produced in tiny, tiny quantities, far smaller than Petrus. Um, particular, say a, a Grand Cru might come from just two barrels, whereas, you know, the first growth Shatters are full of hundreds and hundreds of barrels. Uh, but they don't zoom up the prices, and, and the prices do have something to do with quality. Um, the traditional UK wine merchants have been making so much less money selling Bordeaux recently that they've all been trying to develop new areas, such as, as Barolo. But it's almost impossible to find a new source of supply in Burgundy. You have to join the end of a very long queue, and that's another attraction to me, the constancy of trading arrangements. Burgundians sell to the people they've always sold to, and it often goes from one generation to another, uh, rather than just passing it on along a sort of very ramified chain to the merchant who then sells to the the importer. And in between the two, there's a courtier, a broker, who has this wonderful job of ringing up the chateau and saying, what are you thinking of charging? Then ringing up the merchant and saying, he's thinking of charging this, what do you think? And communicating between the two. It's very, very indirect society, Bordeaux. So, um, in conclusion, you'll be glad. How much longer have I got, Michelle? You have got three minutes Ooh, if you want them. Great. Oh, I do. Um, so... Today, with the great um, advantage of being responsible for the Oxford Companion to Wine and getting in all the feedback for the World Atlas of Wine, there is one message coming from all our correspondents around the world, which is that they are seeking fresher, lighter wines that express vineyard rather than winemaking. And guess where can deliver that so easily? A great red burgundy is above all transparent. As you can see in your glasses, it's not as deeply colored. And it's, it is fresh. It's beautifully perfumed. It does. Um, we're not judging. The, the, the vote, as Michelle said, is not on these two particular wines, but I hope is on our arguments. Um, but you can see how beautifully perfumed red burgundy can be. I would argue that it's easier to pair with food than red Bordeaux, thanks perhaps to its slightly softer tannins. Um, I love the way that wine dominates the the wine town of Bone, but it's basically the countryside that's so beautiful. The the villages, the worn stone on on the slope, the, the, um, the vineyards, so much more interesting landscape than the flatlands of the Medoc. I would submit. Um, I will spare you the, the grimness of a 2007 blind ta- uh, Bordeaux blind tasting I did d- uh, the week before last. Um, I could go into detail, but it was deeply disappointing. And the average, the price of the boring wines in the middle was £50 a bottle, and it just mm. didn't seem right. They just weren't earning that price. It was more that complacency was ruling. Um, 
it's very funny that um, now, well, I'll, I'll leave that out. I'll, yeah. um, <laughs> You're running out of yes. time now. No, I'm running out of tact. Um, <laughs> Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy a full-length version, sign up to become a member. We'd also love to hear your feedback on what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcast at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.